Okay, starting off at the top, we are not going to intro the episode with that line. You I know what l- you know what line I'm talking about everyone. We're not we're not going to ta- we're not going to say it. I refuse to acknowledge the existence of that movie and it's itching that- in the back of my brain. <laughs> we're not going to say it. Maybe I'll let you maybe I'll let you say it later. We're not going to okay. talk about Okay, okay. We're not going to talk about it. We're not going to say it because. Okay. Welcome to Recommended Reading with Jackson Heyman. I'm Jackson Heyman. Um, welcome to X Month, um, our weekly mini, our weekly mini series in the month of May, um, talking about all things X Men era by era. This year, we're talking about the Lee Kirby era of X Men from 1963 to 1965. And wow, it's been like two two months since I've actually recorded one of these. Um, we pre-recorded every other episode for for this month um, back in March, but now it's May, and we're literally a day out from the first episode dropping. And here we are. I am joined by my dear friend, um, back for number three, Eddie Passell. Yeah, that's how. Yep, you know. I I am so excited to be back. I am a big I it's you know it's weird. I'm a big fan of the X-Men, but I there's so much I still don't know. So reading what we are going to be discussing today was really interesting um because I had never read it prior. Um so I was uh I was pleasantly surprised, you know. Yeah. I was surprised. I think like I think this is this is a project for me and me alone more than anything else. And that project is to actually sit down and read every era of the X-Men that I've always wanted to read. Cause like I have been well-versed in some of the Claremont stuff for deck for almost a decade at this point. Um, like they were the first, that was like the first era of the X-Men that I really gravitated to because it had all the Claremont era has all the cool characters. It bring it, you get Wolverine, you get Storm, you get Colossus and Nightcrawler and Kitty Pride, my five favorite X-Men. And like and oh, like yeah. you get so much weird cosmic space opera stuff. You get like <laughs> era de, you get era defining stories. You get you get the fucking Phoenix, you get all just these interesting takes on mutants and how the world perceives mutants. Mm -hmm. But like then even within the Claremont era, there's the wrongs of stuff that I haven't even read, like new mutants and Excalibur and X factor and all the stuff that he did with uh, Louis Simonson and all these later things that even just widened the scope of what made the X-Men so great in the eighties even more. And like, but that's just one decade, because then you get you get the weird shit that was the late 90s. Let's not. OK, think, you know, I think the late 90s for any comic book team or character is just kind of a weird, weird era, you know, See, that most people would rather not speak about. Except for, like, maybe Spidey. I think Spidey had a really good 90s. Spidey had a great 90s. I think uh, the Bad Family had a great 90s as well, because you get get Nightfall, and you get 
you get the crazy shit of like Nightfall followed by No Man's Land followed by like this wide expansion of the Bat family. And I think the the 90s was a great year for the great decade for the Bat family and like Spider-Man and late 90s. I think JLA really hits like that's when Morrison takes over and then also like Avengers 2 you get some you get some stuff with them but then like yeah nothing else it's all like extreme and like pouches. It felt really experimental is the word that I would use like very experimental very let's you know, let's amp everything up to a thousand and see what works. And, you know, that's why I think it worked for Spidey because that was the introduction of Venom and Venom is inherently a child of the 90s. Yeah. Um, Venom and Carnage are like... Yeah. Like, they were both created, I think, late 80s, early 90s. I might be completely wrong. I know, I think you're right in that. Like, it it was that transitional period where they were just starting out to do those, like... You know, it Todd McFarlane was uh, on Spidey, so you know they were just starting to get into like the giant muscles and everyone yeah. towers over each other, and my my uh my entire body is as big as Spider Man's tricep, like except you know, for the little tiny feet and right and bring it back to hold them up, yeah, and bring it back to the X Men kind of like. The 90s were, like, defined by, like, Cable and Bishop and, like, these huge gun-toting characters who, at first glance, you don't really think they're, like, the rest of the mutants. Right. Like, my biggest um, exposure to comics with the 90s era is, like, the Vertigo stuff. So all, like, the weird Sandman and Doom Patrol and Animal Man... Like, the stuff that got really experimental in, like, the opposite direction as the rest of, like, 90s comics. Like, that shit was introspective and mature. Mm-hmm. And then everything else was, like, big guns, big bodies, big pouches. Yeah. There were, a lot of swords. Fu- there were a lot of fucking pouches and guns and swords in the 90s. Yeah, and you know that's also a testament to Deadpool. Uh, that introduction to Deadpool, he, I think he was introduced in the nineties, or he boomed in the nineties. It was one of those. I think two. like right on the cusp. Like I think. Hold on, let me look this up. Um, first appearance. Um, not wait. Oh, okay. I was so confused. It said 1983 for a second, but that was just the first year New Mutants was published. Okay, I was going to say, I was like, no way. No, no, he's not from 1983. But, okay. Okay. Um, I believe 1993 was Deadpool's first appearance. That makes more sense. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, 91. 1991. Which makes even more sense, I think. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, and I think it's just, you know what, to, to, to wrap it up really quick, it's just an era of comics where you look back on it and you're either like, that's some of the coolest shit I've ever seen, or what were they thinking? <laughs> I, I think the classic image to, to explain all of 90s comics is that Rob Liefeld, Captain America 
drawing. Like you know what you know what I'm talking about, where he has the Good Lord the big fucking oh. chest. <laughs> <laughs> I, because I think that was also the same year. I need to double check. Uh, but that was the same year they were trying to do, um, that reboot. I believe. Oh yeah, yeah that was the year. That was the year ninety-seven. Heroes. That was Reborn. the year where like the Avengers, Iron Man, Captain America, and the Fantastic Four all were like shuffled into their own universe. And yeah, everyone for else. Reason. It was like everyone... their first go at the Ultimates. Yeah. Um, but like, sense. yeah. We're like, because like they were really giving different creators the reins, but the creators they handed those characters off to were Rob Liefeld and Jim Lee. And Jim Lee, fucking amazing yeah. artist. I think what he's great. I don't have. I mean, like, Liefeld, I can see. The appeal. I can see the appeal of Rob Liefeld's art and, like, early image stuff that he did. But, like, it's not for me. It's not my, it's not my taste. I've never really read Liefeld. I've read some of Liefeld's work with Deadpool. um, And I see why he feels so protective of that character, because I think that's where his best writing lied. But outside of that, I really never had interest in reading anything else he did, so I can't give a a genuine like critique on his work yeah. as a writer. Um, which I should read into more because I hear such extremes from both ends. But um, I don't know. I I've just never I've never really touched it just because I've I feel like there's some controversy with him. I don't know. Um, I think he's so kind. I think he's kind of an forth. ass. He might be just an asshole, I think. <laughs> like most people in the industry. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, okay. I th- I think it had to do with the Deadpool movie. Uh, I yeah. think there was like some drama yeah. with either one or two. Who knows? But like, yeah, like there are some creatives in the comics industry that I would be totally fine just like never meeting at a convention oh, yeah. or just I've like got never... a couple of names that I could say, but I'm not going to just in case a business opportunity ever presents itself at um, a certain company. I'll I'll say one because I don't think any company, any of the big companies want to work with him anymore. Uh, Frank Miller. Oh, OK. Yeah, I, I he was on my list, but I have a really, really big one that. I don't think I can. I don't know if he still works. Uh, okay, you want, do you want to just not? Or uh, no, yeah, cut it. You can cut it. You can cut, cut it. Cu- you... I'll cut this, or like I'll either cut this or like censor out the name. Okay, I keep everything but the name because this is gonna sound crazy. So yes. I have gotten on multiple occasions to speak with. He's the biggest asshole I have ever met in my entire life. No, I completely agree with you. Um, so unprofessional. Gonna... And I was like, bruh, I'm sorry. Like, aren't you supposed to be like the professional? Like, We're going to we're going to bleep this name out. So I feel totally fine saying this. Uh, okay, because I don't know if he's still at unnamed company. Um, hold on. Let me look. Um. Is he? Um, That's okay. I'm I'm looking at his. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for. 
right now. I'm going to keep saying name so we can keep bleeping it out because I think that's really like that's the move here. Um he, he that. We'll also bleep that out. Oh no. The highest positions in the company, and this I'm on the, here like Mans is the biggest asshole I've ever met. This is the yeah. first time we're ever gonna have to bleep something on this podcast. And oh my god, no, no, no! This this is good. Well, I'm this glad is I, good. I get to um, claim this uh, achievement in the history of of recommended reading. Good God, what is going on? I love Marvel well, Creative, but Marvel Corporate, man. What's going on? Mar Comics Creative, I think, has some... There are a couple bag bad eggs in, like, the creative stables of, like, the big two, I think. But, um... I think the corporate is where the, um... The worst shit goes. Um, Definitely. Let's, you know... Should we bleep these... Are these people with the company anymore? Um... Let me, I'm gonna, we're gonna just keep bleeping names. Um, he's still with the company, um. Oh, okay. So, he's not with, uh, DC anymore. Uh, Jeff Johns. Okay. Uh, Jeff Johns. Fuck him. Fuck Jeff Johns. I'm gonna say it right now. Don't bleep it. I don't care if he knows that I hate that motherfucker. That's, yep, oh that's God. it. That's it. We are we are keeping this name uncensored. <laughs> we are like the juggernaut in that we are barreling through the comic book community. <laughs> we who okay, who else do we hate? Who else do we have vendettas against? Um Frank Miller. Uh, Jeff Johns, uh, Dan Gross. DiDio. Uh, I don't like Dan DiDio. Just some... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he's working with Frank Miller now, so... Uh... Um, you know what? Let's just ignore all this shit, and let's talk about some creatives, creatives we actually kind of like. Yeah. Um, Stan Lee and Jack yep. Kirby. Now... Oh, the power team! The power... Well, okay. So this was now at the period of time of the X-Men where Kirby was um, just doing layout. So, like, right. it's it's not full Kirby artwork, but you you can see his influence. Yeah, his mark is still on the pages in, in just the, the dynamic um, shots that you see in each panel. Now, I will also just interject one last thing about... Stanley as a businessman, um, I don't agree with a lot of his practices and ideas, but this is sort of where he shines, I think, as yeah. a creator and as a writer, this era. 100%. So let's dig into what we're actually talking about. Um, we are talking um, issues 12 and 13 of the X-Men, stories entitled The Secret Origin of Professor X and Where Walks the Juggernaut. Published yeah. in May and July 1965, written by Stan Lee, layouts by Jack Kirby, pen pencils by Alex Toth and Werner Roth, inks by Vince Coletta and Joe Sinnott, and letters by Sam Rosen. Welcome to the 60s.
dare I say, the golden age of comic books. Golden age of Marvel. Well, okay. Oh, yeah, so, maybe not DC, but well, I, I feel like Marvel really shined in the 60s. I think, like, Marvel in, like, the actual, like, recognized golden age kind of sort of faltered a bit. Like, yeah. It, as, like... Like, they had their big three. They had Namor, the Human Torch, and Captain America. But, like, I think that was it for them. Mm-hmm. At least in public perceptions from, like, 2022 perspective. Because, like, DC at this time, at that time, had, like, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman. They had the entire mm-hmm. stable of the Justice Society, too. And, like... Yeah, they were on it, bro. They were on it. And, like, there were other companies at this, at that point, too. Like, like, it wasn't just the corporate monopoly of Marvel or DC. (laughs) We actually had people like Quality Comics and Fawcett and, was it? I am, I've been doing too much reading about um, Fox Feature Syndicate recently. (laughs) um, Well, because of the crazy man that is Victor Fox, but we don't have time to talk about the guy who proclaimed himself to be the king of comics in front of Jack Kirby. Oh, yikes. But I think, like, I think you could consider it Marvel's Silver Age, yes. to be fair. Because like, I, I I, consider, now that I think about it, I, I consider the, the end of the Silver Age as the night Gwen Stacy died. That, yeah, um, I think that's, like, where a lot of the scholars, like, hit the timeline. Yeah, just because, like, up until then, it's very, you know, early Avengers, early Fantastic Four, like Peril and Power, uh, Fantastic Four, good stuff. Um, but yeah, man, I, I, uh, it was nice returning. I haven't returned to the '60s since I was reading like Essential Spider-Man Volume One. Guys, shout out Marvel Essential Paperbacks, like. This shit is golden. I say as my whole, I hold up my original Essential Uncanny X-Men Volume 1 that I found for $5 at the place I believe I've shouted out in every episode of this month, Collector's Edge Comics South in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, If this gives them any sort of business, I feel happy because... Okay, quick tangent. I... Re- like, I got back into comics, like, beginning of last year, 2021, and I didn't have a car when I was living in Milwaukee. Oh. So I would take the bus, because I it was, I had just gotten vaccinated. I was like, I feel okay getting back on public Finally. transit. Yeah, you get vaccinated, like, you get the mask on, and you go. <laughs> you get the you get the mask on, you you're vaccinated, you get on the bus, you This is a real story that happened. You sit on the first bus for 40 minutes. Oh no. Um through multiple delays and things, it drops you off on a street where nothing's around. You wait 30 more minutes for a second bus to take you to the other side of town. And then you're finally able to buy comics. And then you're like, I don't want to get back on the bus. So you just Uber back to your apartment. (laughs) Uh, 
I am ashamed of that, but I did it. And... Oh, man. You know what? It was, uh, that was, I, you know, in, that was the time of the wild, wild west, you know, where you kind of had to fend for yourself. You had to, uh, you had to do what you could to stay safe, you know, like. If, if you wanted to eat comic, comics, you had to take on these trials. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. You had to walk right into Mordor. Oh my god. But like, um, Collector's Edge Comics South Milwaukee and the, the North the the North building too, the North store, both some of my favorite stores. Honestly, shout out Milwaukee's comic book store scene. I as someone who's really only lived two places in my life, um no, because there are some great comic stores in in the Twin Cities area. Yeah. But but none of them have like none of them have had like the finds that I have found in Milwaukee. Because like I yeah. found this in a $5 trade paperback bin. This What? what? Yeah. I found this whole essentials for five bucks. And then I went to a different store, uh, shout out the turning page in Milwaukee and just on their bookshelves were essential X-Men volumes two, three, four, and five. Dude at Barnes and Noble, it's like 30 bucks to get one. <laughs> you got a steal, man. Well, like, okay. I have a problem with how Barnes and Noble prices things. Well, actually, no, not Barnes and Noble. With how Marvel prices their books in relation to DC. Right. Um, I'm gonna go. I I will all be right back. I am gonna go get some visual aids. Okay. Um, all right. All right. <laughs> What's up? Okay. Recommended reading. Uh, my name's A. Purcell. I make um content. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I make Spider-Man audio dramas right now. Okay, I'm back. Jackson is I'm, back. I'm back. Here we go. Here we go. Okay. Will this work? Oh, no, wait. This won't work. These are both the same price. Never mind. Fuck. Okay, go, 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 go. Anyways, guys, uh, welcome back to Eddie Pussell on Recommended Reading. Um, what's everyone's favorite iteration of Spider-Man? <laughs> Mine is Ultimate Spider-Man. You can't beat Ultimate Spider-Man. Although, although uh, John Romita Sr. and Stan Lee's run get very close. But Ultimate Spider-Man, you know, he takes the cake. He takes the cake. And, yes. you know, okay. I think I something... have better visual aids. Yeah. Okay. There we... Yeah. <laughs> I did. Okay. So. Um, here in my hand, I have a trade paperback from Marvel of Amazing X-Men, um, The Quest for Nightcrawler by Jason Aaron and Ed McGinnis. Um, this collects the first six issues of this series. It's like the standard, like really thin Marvel book, right? Um, I want you to guess how much this is going for. I think I can guess. It's probably $26.99, isn't it? Uh, it's $17.99. Oh, okay. I was gonna say. Yeah, so it's like 
for this, for this alone, pretty reasonable, pretty good. It's not pretty good. too bad. It's not, it's not a bad price. Um, right. now, I have this deluxe hardcover of DC's Infinite Crisis, the one book by, the one of two books by Jeff Johns I will physically own, because right. I care for, I care for that story that much. Um, and I really like Phil Jimenez's art. It's the best part of this. But yeah. um, I want you to guess how much this is. This is a deluxe hardcover. Um, has interviews, sketches, forewords, just a lot of a lot of behind the scenes information in addition to the main series. Um, um, this is, maybe... I believe, also six issues. I might be wrong, but. Um, Don't yes, I think see and their pricing. I can't imagine it's any more than maybe I okay, my personal guess will be 21, but I can't imagine it'll be more than 25. It is exactly 24.99. Oh, there we go. So you get this you get more. You get you get, yeah, you get way more for just like a like six or seven bucks more. And you get a nice hardcover. And this Marvel paperback is $18 plus tax. Oh, man. And that's nothing compared to the Runaways complete collection by Brian K. Vaughn, Vol Volume 1. This is $34.99, this $35. Oh. And I have seen Marvel books smaller than this about half this size and complete complete collections like this go for the exact same price yeah because i think like with marvel it's with bigger properties like that like dude spider-man spider-man trade paperbacks you know what let me grab a visual aid even though my computer doesn't have a webcam right now yes um i got my my uh comic book setups right over here I got Ned Leeds as the Hobgoblin. Oh, no! There goes my Goku figure. Um, so, yeah. Let me grab one of the newer issues of Amazing Spider-Man. Um, okay. Yeah. Nick Spencer. Run. Same pricing um, as that Nightcrawler book, but I think it has less issues. Oh, my God. Let me see how many issues in this. Um, maybe I'm tripping. Let's see. Where's the index? Somebody help me. I think it's like five or six. Oh. And it's like eighteen ninety nine. And um, and I just don't understand it because like, a part of me feels like well, one, it's Spider Man. Yeah. Uh, so I feel like they're gonna overprice it. Um, but also it features Mark Bagley, um, which I think is another reason as to why they overpriced it. Yeah, it's only five issues. Oh my god. For okay. eighteen ninety nine. And I was like, bruh, and the story's not even that good. And a and a counter and a, and another point to this. Um, I have been buying up all of Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo's uh, Batman run, like five years, I believe, of comics. Um, I've been buying it in the trade paperback form. Um, 
They all collect about six or seven issues, and it's Batman. It's great, talented creators that everyone loves working on Batman. It's popular stories that everyone loves. Each trade is about $17. Like, like what? Less than these Marvel books. It's insane. Like, DC's just on it, bro. And I feel like the price... I don't know. I, I feel like with the it, I feel like partially it's the success of the MCU and jacking up the prices. Um but also I just feel like Marvel Corporate's got kind of a big head. I mean, we've already discussed how much we hate Marvel Corporate. I think <laughs> Oh yeah. wait, wait, no, I said Marvel Corporate. Blank corporate. Blank corporate. Blank blank bleep this out. Bleep this out. Oh god. <laughs> I am gonna have to do so much editing. For this oh man <laughs> is my saturday free next week um probably uh, <laughs> um what were we talking about the juggernaut yeah uh, something like that you know <laughs> so this is the this is the first appearance of the juggernaut um everyone knows him everyone loves him i love him eddie loves him the big dumb idiot villain of the x-men um but not the first big dumb idiot, because um, a character and a story I'm sadly, I'm sad that we could not cover this month was um, the first appearance of the Blob. I think he is a fun villain. He's a really, like, villainizing obese people and overweight people aside, I think he's a very fun character. Yeah. Um, I would say but I, I'm glad I've got some extra pounds and I could say the Blob is, is funny, you know? Yeah, he's fun. He's a he's a fun guy, but um, but I wanted to make sure we got one big dumb idiot, and <laughs> and I think we picked my I think we picked the better one because this gives us our first non mutant villain in all of the X Men. Yeah, yeah. The first, oh my gosh, the first character they face that is specifically not a mutant, and the first one with a one of the first characters with a direct connection to the history and life of Charles Xavier. Yeah, which was kind of groundbreaking at the time. If I if I remember like that early 60s X-Men run because Charles Xavier for for all that we knew was kind of a really mysterious figure in the sense of we didn't really know what his past looked like and what brought him to the point of Hey, I'm gonna create this school. I'm gonna, you know, we didn't know the nurture um, aspect of his of his personality. We knew yeah. his nature. His nature is, you know, being Charles. But the nurture part of him was was completely uh, unrevealed. So this was like a really big, just shock that like, oh, this huge villain who's like whooping everyone's ass. Oh, what? It's our. Charles Xavier, his brother, like that is just kind of like groundbreaking for early 60s X-Men. And this was before the Magneto retcon, too. This was before Charles and Magneto had really like been friends. Right. So like, yeah, this, this is the first one with a direct connection. Now, I want to talk about this first spread in at the beginning of the issue, because... I think it really sets up something. It sets up a couple of things. 
it first off, this is the first time we see Cerebro, um, right. the machine used by Charles to detect mutants. In this case, evil mutants. Yeah. Um, first question, why is it picking up the juggernaut then? Yeah, part of me wonders if, like, they just didn't know what they wanted specifically from Juggernaut's power set. I feel like the knee-jerk reaction was, oh, if he's this strong, he must be a mutant because it's the X-Men book. But then it kind of changed as their preferences for the character changed upon writing. Mm -hmm. Um, But it definitely confused me when I was reading. I was like, uh, is this right? Is that it does not seem right. It is it is specifically mentioned later in the issue that that the juggernaut does not get his powers from a mutation, and that is the source of Kane's jealousy towards Charles. Yeah. <laughs> um I want to talk about the design of Cerebro here too, because we've we've been conditioned for years to have this one idea of what Cerebro looks like. And we usually see as like a helmet apparatus. And here it's just like an alarm on a desk. Yeah, which is really weird. <laughs> I I must say, I was really confused. Like it, it, it kind of came out for a moment. I was like, this what? Something about this is just not sitting right with me. It's very like low tech. In an era where everything else was, like, more advanced than this. In terms of, like, the Marvel characters. Like. Right. We, and we've, we've literally just, this is positioned on the desk where, like, a computer would be. It's, it's very much like, he sits there, and, like, he takes off this wood panel that's hiding it, and it's just, like, an old 40s alarm system. Yeah, and I love how Cyclops is like, everybody get no one wants to know about this. And no like, one. Why? Why would no one want? Like, what? I don't understand the secrecy behind Cerebro. Shut up, Scott! You fucking narc. Uh, you <laughs> stay out, all of you. No one is supposed to know about the Professor's Cerebro machine. Bro, he's such a narc. It's <laughs> this fucking teacher's pet ass. This is. Oh my god. You everyone knows about the scummers in joke here now, oh, but yeah. but Scott Scummers. Scott Scummers, this is where he finally gets the chance to be the narc, the to be the RA. Like he's finally uh, like I'm the professor's favorite. No one <laughs> is allowed to know about this but me. Oh, but pr- professor, it was supposed to be our secret. Oh, oh no. Oh no. Um, I, speaking of secrets, I have one more, I have one more line from Charles that I need to point out here. Um, we can have no secrets from each other now. Um, well, funny story, funny story about About that, that. funny story about that, Chuck. Um, there's a lot more in your past that you are not talking about. (laughs) That's, I feel like part of the... Okay, I am a a firm believer in that I feel like the way Marvel and DC both handle their continuities are not great. (laughs) With 
uh, on uh, to get the DC side out of the way because I know that if I don't mention it, people are going to be like, "Well, what about me? Um, DC?" I feel like retconning every year just takes uh, yeah act out of stories. But Marvel, man, something about them having saying that like everything from the first Marvel comic to right now is canon. It just creates for so many inconsistencies that just destroy the storytelling of yeah. Marvel, which is why so many people love these early books more because there's no there's no continuity you have to like really like navigate like deeply like it's they they feel like Saturday morning cartoons but that is that is the best comparison I can like think of with this like Early X-Men is totally in the vein of, like, a cartoon, like a Saturday morning show. Right, and it's like, you don't have to juggle with this person's died 30 times before this, and you have to know these 13 stories in order to understand. Um, and it was really refreshing reading this, and it, you know, just not having to think about all of the past, like... 60 years worth of stuff and like it was just really nice reading this book it just tells us everything we need to know uh and i didn't have to read a, an editor's note like yeah. oh read the last three arcs if you want to understand this little reference and i love when the x-men go into like the 70s and the 80s and become this insane soap opera where all these things happen but it's so refreshing to like see the first class, see them just get into shenanigans. Yeah, like, it's, it's, I don't know. It just, that was my little tiny rant on continuity yeah. in Marvel and DC, but I, I think that's something that makes these older books just so entertaining. Is yeah. like, you know, it's, when you're reading this, and you get the backstory of, of, of Charles Xavier. It's something that's never happened before in this continuity right now. It's new, and it's actually shocking because at this point, if you're just reading the, this run, you don't hear about anything from Charles' past. So it's not like reading in 2017 where it's like, <laughs> we're going to reveal something new about a character that's adding on to the... 30 other things we've added randomly for shock value. This feels like genuine uh, story. Like, this adds to the plot. They're not just doing it for shock factor to sell books. It's, um, not, it's not retconning for the sake of retconning. Right, and it's retconning for the sake of telling a moving, great plot. And I... Quick, quick side tangent within your side rant. Um... Uh, Jonathan Hickman did this in 2019 in a, in a retcon about the life, the life of Charles Xavier and more specifically the life of Moira McTaggart. Um, this, the forever like love interest of Charles and who for up until about 2019 was not a mutant, but Hickman reveals in Hox Pox, House of X Powers of 10, um, that Moira is a mutant, and her mutant ability is that she reincarnates and remembers every single detail of her past lives. Which I think is a great 
yeah. use of like retcon for an interesting new story take. Like it's right. not it's a shock value in the yeah, best way. It God, I cannot wait for um twenty twenty five when I am covering the Hickman X Men stuff. <laughs> Hickman, you know, yeah. I, God, you Hickman said everything is, that I could. Hickman say. is Hickman is so good. I love Jonathan Hickman. Um, he knows what he's doing. He yeah, knows what he's, he's doing. Great. I'm really sad that he has left the X office now, but I can't wait to see what he does next. Um, he wrote a Moon Knight comic that I need to go read. Apparently, really, uh, he. Really? It's like Moon Knight Black, White, and Blood. It like came out last week, I think. Oh. Wow. This looks pretty cool. It looks badass. This is actually his costume is so so interesting. But I Okay, love it. so okay, so this is like I believe this is an anthology of like three different writers taking on stories, but Hickman is one of them. And mm. I like that Hickman is writing new characters because like I think like Hickman is the master of I think reinventing characters especially with his stuff at Marvel I don't because Fantastic Four and the X-Men are like his big pet projects he was he really like yeah yeah he defined the Fantastic Four for a decade and introduce so many ideas that I love. I think the Future Foundation stuff is so interesting. He, and he made the Fantastic Four really cool. Like, <laughs> Future Foundation stuff was so good. And gave, I, I love Future Foundation because I am a simp for Spider-Man. You know that. Um, and he, I loved reading those, those books. He gave Johnny the perfect death and the perfect resurrection. Yes, yes. I don't know if if Hickman wrote this moment, but who uh, that death led to like one of my favorite Spider-Man moments between uh, Frank Richards and Spidey after the death of Johnny. Just some of my best Spider-Man like memories from that. He also did Spider-Man Full Circle. Oh um, yeah. Which I, I enjoyed just because I think Hickman really knows how to write Spider-Man. I, I think he, he really uh, has a, a, a nail down on what makes Spider-Man interesting um, I, and, and, and great. I think everything like Hickman is everything Hickman has done, like since like the beginning of his Fantastic Four to like him stepping down from head of the X offices um, right. last year with like Inferno and all this stuff. I think everything he writes is like a love letter to what's come before. Right. You can like tell he, that Hickman is a genuine fan of the content. He's a fan who wants to take the stuff that he loves and like synthesize it into something entirely new. Yeah, no, completely. It, 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 when I read Hickman's writing, it feels like I'm reading, uh, I'm watching the MCU, not in the sense of like how they handle story, but how they handle characterizing characters. Like you could, with the MCU, you can tell they're fans of the content and the material. And I feel the same way with, with Hickman. Um, his run 
his long run on Avengers, I really enjoyed like those early Avengers books he did. I um, I've been meaning to read that. Like that is yeah. It he, seems like ep- so epic in scale. It is. It is. And 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 he really knows how to handle uh, a team book, which I really enjoy because. Uh, some Avengers writers in the past, I feel like, have had trouble. Because, I mean, writing a team book's difficult, you know? It's not easy. But he really brought uh, a great sense of scale to that book while keeping it still interconnected um, with, like, the inner machinations of drama within the team. He also gave me my favorite Iron Man armor ever, the black and gold Oh, that, that iron, oh, God, I need, I do need to talk about that. Like, I, that armor is so good, um, but, yeah, like, stay tuned in 2025 for, because <laughs> I have a name for it already, um, oh, and I will okay. say it, um, and I hope I don't forget this in three fucking years, um, stay tuned in 2025 for a month of X podcast of X. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, but yeah, because like next year it's Claremont shit all the way. It's like the the iconic Claremont stuff. Um, 2024, um, get ready for me to talk about Grant Morrison even more than I already do on this podcast. Um, Grant Morrison, incredible writer. Um, they're run on it. Their run on X-Men, I think, is as era-defining as, like, Claremont or Hickman or even, like, Lee and Kirby, but in different ways. I will save my thoughts for later because we have to talk about the Juggernaut. Right, right. Yeah, hey, everybody, welcome to Sidetrack the Podcast. (laughs) Welcome to Sidetrack, um, just reminding, if anyone, um, wants to, um... If we said if we talked about something in this episode that you want us to elaborate more on, uh, Venmo us at Mythonomica Dash Productions with the notes for your recommended requests episode, and we will get that, and we will get that to you with a day eventually. <laughs> when when the audience grows some more, you gotta open up a patron and That's just the, do. A we have Patreon podcast. We have Patreon ideas. I don't want to talk about them here but we have patreon ideas let's let's go through the inner machinations of the mythonomica productions business plan on recommended reading we are not going to talk about business plans here (laughs) we are here to talk about the (laughs) x-men we are we are here to talk about the x-men laying traps for the juggernaut which includes angel beast and cyclops Setting up grenades. Yeah. They, <laughs> in logs. Hollowed out logs. They hollow out logs and throw grenades in them. Like, I know they don't know what they're about to face, but how do you think grenades and logs are going to stand against the juggernaut? Yeah, but also, like, what if it was, like, someone who's just kind of like a, a, um, a mortal on, like, health stats? You know what I mean? Like... A log, a grenade in a log would just murder somebody. Like, they would never come out of that alive. Hey, it's us, Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch. We've left the Brotherhood at this point to go join the Avengers. We just wanted to apologize for everything. Oh my gosh. Imagine, bro, like, 
can we at least assess the situation first before we start like ripping out people's flesh with log bits like well it's good to know that like this these booby traps weren't here before so like <laughs> it, it's not like this was a school with a built-in security system like this right which also um, is concerning yeah the fact that anyone could just walk up i think though i think for the first i think this is another first. The first time anyone has tried to attack the Xavier School. Oh, yeah. I think. Yeah. I mean, it's the first notable one that I can remember from memory. Yeah. Um, um, I'm just remember. flipping through my essentials paper rack here, seeing if there's anything else. Um, Who the fuck is Unus the Untouchable? What? Who is this? Where... I've never heard of... What in the world? What is that costume? Who the... Hello? Like, okay. what's going on? Um, if anyone wants to pay us uh, $20 to talk for 40 minutes about Unis the Untouchable, that Venmo again is Mythonomica-Productions. <laughs> I am going to hit up the Venmo so we can have an entire episode dedicated are... to Arm Fall Off Boy. Oh, please. We said it on the podcast now. <laughs> so so it's been Arm Fall Off Boy has been mentioned. Um, can we do a Okay, this is okay. Oh, God. We're gonna talk forever, but another side tangent. Um I um and in, I you know, I will not explain the job that led to this, but um there was a trivia thing at this job that was like, we're gonna give you a bunch of obscure comic book characters and you have to guess what's real and what's not and arm fall off boy and matter eater lad were like two that the contestant i believe both guessed wrong like yeah. they they thought they were both fake um if anyone would like a double feature of arm fall off boy and matter eater lad hit us up yeah let's let's i just want a whole episode just dedicated to random Unnecessary superheroes. Og welder. <laughs> um, but okay, we get the first flashback in the story of Xavier's origins. So, so it's been established that he is the son of two scientists who worked on the first atomic bomb in New Mexico, which, when you think of Charles Xavier, do you think of him being from New Mexico? Not, you know what? I can't say that I've ever thought that. <laughs> I so I think like we brought this up in the first episode of X Month, where um, uh, some characters are always one single age or something like that. Like in my mind, Charles and Magneto will always be in their sixties. I think because of like Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart. Yeah. Um, but also just portrayals. Like, they have always been depicted as, like, older men. Right. And for Charles, I've always... I think, like, place also applies to this. Like, I've always thought he's from England. And, again, because of, like, the movies have have made... have changed my perceptions of these things. Yeah. It, I mean, like, the movie... I mean, say what you want about the plots of the movies, but, I mean, the performances 
are just overall like there's there's some sour ones in there but overall the performances of those old x-men movies are iconic in every way and some of the most iconic superhero performances period and i'm not just talking about hugh jackman i I don't think hugh jackman brought his his all into wolverine until a bit later i think ian mckellen and 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 patrick stewart like just ian murdered those first two movies and i love them for it sir patrick um alan cumming did fucking alan cumming alan cumming fucking incredible oh dude just like i mean like there's so much to talk about like i feel like those movies kind of just get lumped in with the the praise for Hugh Jackman, and I love Hugh Jackman. I think Hugh, Hugh Jackman is the most iconic Wolverine we've ever seen on anything, but, I mean, I, I think that these other performances deserve just as much praise, yes. if not more. But Charles here is full American, and I think it's funny that he grew up near, like, Roswell, or, like, I like that yeah. image of, like, him growing up in the American Southwest. (laughs) Uh, But so his father dies and his mother immediately remarries another to another scientist. Um, And they move in and Charles is introduced to his stepbrother, Cain Marco, who is this Neanderthal of a man. Um, I have some art here that I'm looking at. Like, he is, like, full, like, caveman height meets Biff from Back to the Future. <laughs> we love it, you know? We, we, we love it. <laughs> He's, and Kane is a bully. Um, and eventually, um, Dr. Marco dies, and it's reveal, he reveals to Kane and Charles that Charles is a mutant and that he has this power. And so that is the first step of jealousy towards this Cain and Abel relationship. And I think that's definitive. Like, that's deliberate. Like, naming the juggernaut Cain is a direct response to, like, the two brothers, Cain and Abel. Right. Yeah. I I, I mean, I, I love how... What's what's the best way to say? It? I, I I love how differently they're portrayed visually uh, in these past flashbacks to really strike home the complete juxtaposition they are to each other. Yes, like I, the characterization of of Charles being this tiny little scrawny boy. He is um, so tiny. Is awesome. I love it. I I think it's great. I think it's like. It, uh, you know, it 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 goes uh, to visually show that his power um, has always been, and not not just because after he's you know not just after he's put in the wheelchair, but even before his power, uh, true power has always been his mind. Mm-hmm. Um, even before he discovered his mutant abilities, he's always been a really really smart kid. Yeah, and he excels in school and in sports. Um, specifically football and track, which leads to my favorite panel in this first issue, um, where it's revealed that for most of his childhood, Charles had a full head of hair. But 
in when he started doing track, he is completely bald. He has shaved his head completely. Right. So that's a choice. This is a choice Charles made at like age 17. Right. Like, I always thought he went bald because of like the mutant power. You or know? like, or maybe like use of Cerebro if we want to like connect it to like the helmet again. Right. But like, nah, he just was like, uh, aerodynamics. I want to shave it for track. I am going to be the most successful runner in this high school's history. My name will be on that trophy case forever. I will so become completely hairless. <laughs> but so we get more fight and hatred between Charles and Kane until Kane has had it. And the first thing he decides to do is take Charles for a drive and drive him off a cliff. I I just like what? Yeah, you I my my stepbrother is better than me at like school and sports, so I'm just going to drive him off this cliff. Yeah. What a healthy, not toxic thing to do. I think the other thing that is very funny about this is like it cuts back to his students when he's telling the story and he's like was that how you lost the use of your legs, Professor? No, that happened another time. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you'd think that... You'd, you'd think that this is what did it. But Which, no. I, I feel like it would be an even better decision plot-wise to have the man who put Charles in his wheelchair be his brother and what is characterized in this book as their greatest enemy yet. It adds to the stakes, but no, he's like, no, 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 no. That was a different time. Uh, Lucifer actually uh, paralyzed me. I completely survived that car crash down that cliff without a scratch in a convertible. I gotta, I gotta look something up. I need to know what Lucifer, the X-Men villain, looks like. I have... Probably like the devil <laughs> I, okay so there's unus the untouchable again yeah <laughs> um <laughs> i'm gonna send you this picture and I'm, I'm gonna describe it to you first um lucifer looks like a like a doctor doom ripoff and charles is in like a high-tech wheelchair and that's that's all I'm going to show you right now. That's all I'm going to tell, tell you. But um, here is what Lucifer looks like. Oh, uh, what in the world? What is he riding, bro? Yeah, what the what fuck is, is Charles riding? Charles is like, I'm going to pull up in a World War II tank. Oh my god, it's insane. But then, uh, next flashback gives us, um, they're still brothers after, um, they're still, like, in touch after Kane tries to kill Charles, because they serve in Korea together. Uh, yeah, you know, just, you know, normal. normal you know, the bond stuff. The bonds of war affect us all in different ways. <laughs> um, 
But so Kane finds the cursed gem of Cytorak, and it transforms him into the Juggernaut. And that is the origin. And then at the end of this issue, like we've been cutting between the flashbacks and the the mansion getting fucking wrecked as whatever's coming towards them gets closer. Also, and this I'd entire like time note... the Oh, oh yeah, what go... were you saying? I was just gonna say I'd like to note how ridiculous it is that Iceman has boots on. We've talked about this multiple times. He is chilly. He needs his boots. You'd think, though, being made of ice would kind of make you immune to the cold. He needs his bootsies. <laughs> Anyways, continue. Yes. The, so the, entire, <laughs> the entire time we've been seeing the Juggernaut get closer and he's obscured in shadow this entire time. And I think that's the best choice. It like Definitely. really it really adds to the air of mystery and threatening and like, what the fuck is going to happen? Who is coming for them? Yeah. What has become of this man? Like not even in the origin story, do we get to see his actual look like they, they hide it even there. They show his back, but that's it. Then at the end, in the last panel of issue 12, we see it. We see the, the iconic Juggernaut outfit for the first time. And I love it because it looks so doofy. It looks like, I mean, the way he's standing, bro, it looks like when you go to your mother's room at night to say, Mom, I just threw up. Like, <laughs> Mom, Dad, I've had a nightmare. <laughs> I need to be tucked in one more time. The unstoppable Juggernaut is scared of the dark. <laughs> The unstoppable juggernaut has pooped his pants. <laughs> Please, clean my sheets for me. We love it. Anyways. <laughs> um, but yeah, it really goes to like how much I love this design, this character design. Because it, it looks doofy. But like, I'm still kind of threatened by it. Because if a guy wearing this like massive helmet and like crazy, crazy armor just was running at me from a long distance, I'd be fucking terrified. Yeah, I mean, like... I, I, where's his neck? <laughs> I don't know. But that's what scares me. <laughs> um, I mean, he's... I just... It's, it's a... You know what? He is a testament to the 60s of just like let's just make the most ridiculous shit ever and see what works you know like i feel like i said that already about the 90s <laughs> but i think it's a different kind of ridiculous here yeah it's not like extreme in terms of its ridiculousness but it's like how goofy can we make this villain like they it is like that testing grounds of like what villains are gonna stick and how do we make them stick through, like, design, characterization, or connection to our main characters? Right. Yeah, and it's... Uh, I, you know, it's a good starting off point for his costume. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> it's a good step one. <laughs> I think it. I think in the future it gets like a a lot more like modular and rounded, like where it looks more like the helmet. He looks here mostly like a torso with limbs. Yeah. But eventually the head does start to like get defined. Oh yeah. I know uh right now he he kind of looks like the juggernaut from like Ultimate Spider-Man. <laughs> I no, I don't I know. I think it's Ultimate Spider-Man. Wait. Let me check. It's like they did like a juggernaut but like he has like a fishbowl head. What? Not from the comics, Ultimate Spider-Man. Oh. Not from the oh, good like the cartoon? Spider-Man. Oh. I can get behind it. Yeah, okay. I see what I see where you're going with this. That's what he reminds me of. I, I but feel like, like... But, but even more so, I think like in this one the head is a lot more defined. Yeah. Because like from certain angles, um, in the sixties costume you can you sort of, like, the top rounded part of the helmet is a little nub to the rest of, like, this flat torso. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, man. But yeah, most of issue 13 is a fight scene, so I'm not really going to spend a lot of that, a lot of time talking about that, because, like, you don't want to hear us describe a fight scene unless, like, right. there's some iconic moment in it. But, like, it's a standard juggernaut fight. Like... You, it's unable, they, the X-Men are unable to touch him because, like, he's surrounded by this aura from the gem he has. Um, he just keeps barreling forward. He is unstoppable. Yeah. And, and so Charles decides to send out a psychic signal to most of the Marvel Universe, and we get a couple of cutaways. The first one to, I didn't know these characters existed, until when I was reading this yesterday, who the fuck is the Teen Brigade? Right, like he sends he sends out this <laughs> this brainwave to the Marvel Universe. You would think, you would think he'd like call up the Avengers or the no. Fantastic Four or Spider Man even, but no, the Teen Brigade and Daredevil. Well, okay, so Daredevil I'm cool with, but Dare the Teen Brigade comes out of nowhere. Number one Daredevil fan and Daredevil scholar here. Um, I will. I, I love that Matt's here. I love that he's here. And I love that he ignores it to keep doing his job. And I think right, that's great. like, I got shit to do, man. I got a paycheck to live. I by. have, a, I have a client to defend here. I, I can't just leave this, trial and go be daredevil what am i gonna do <laughs> but the teen brigade uh let, let me let me get like a let me get see if there's a wiki page for the teen brigade yeah and you know what i feel like this is a, a really interesting um device as well because i feel like this is the prototype to what would become the updated uh, Cerebro. Yes, yes. Like, we see a device here that he's using, and it's like head, like big headphones and a helmet, and it looks like something you'd, like, cobble together. Like, like an 80s protagonist making, like, handcrafted DIY technology. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The Mento helmet. 
Yes. Okay, so... Okay, so... This is okay. This is an interesting piece of Marvel history. Team Brigade, um, teenagers coordinated by Rick Jones. And okay. I think Rick, Rick Jones is a fun character, like being like the perpetual sidekick to a lot of established heroes. Apparently, the Teen Brigade are the people that called the Avengers together when Loki attacked. Really? How huh. interesting. This group of teenage boys just being like, hey, we got to go do this. Oh, my gosh. This, okay, this is, I believe, this seems like a Jack Kirby idea because Jack Kirby, love the man. He made a lot of, like, societies of teen boys just doing whatever they want. You got, you got this. <laughs> you got the Newsboy Legion. You got the dingbats of Danger Street. Jack Kirby loves his, like, teenage gangs. But, like, right. six, 60s gangs. Like, being like, hey, what's the big idea? <laughs> um, oh, my gosh. And then we get to see a bit of, uh, of Johnny. Johnny Storm, Johnny Storm. as well. And he is, like, testing out a race car. And he gets this message from Charles. And he's like... Should I do this? Should I go help them? Wait, no, I might be... My mind might be being fucked with by, like, Doctor Doom or the Wizard. I'll just stay here and drive my cool car. <laughs> yeah, he's like, regardless of whether it was or not, I waited too long, and it's gone. All right, yeah. that sucks. And he's like, oh, uh, all right, Johnny, cool. Um, and then hey. they... They try again, and it works this time. Oh and my. then he he straight up flames on out of there and he it's a such a weird cameo, but I kind of love it. Like, I love that of all the people that would respond, it's Johnny Storm. Oh, my God. Dude, yeah, such an odd person to call for the juggernaut. Um, I, it, I feel like you'd want to call like the Hulk. Or the th or the thing. thing if we're gonna like say what the Fantastic Four. Yeah, I, and it's like I like, why did we call Johnny? I do have a theory about why, like it's not the Avengers that are coming here, because there's like there I've been flipping through this. There was an issue previous where like they fought the Avengers and got into like a conflict with them, and I haven't read it, but it like I could assume that they reached like a frenemy relationship, but, like, not, like, I'm gonna come save your life type deal. Right. Yeah. I... Like, I've always thought that the Fantastic Four and the X-Men, they're buds, but the Avengers don't want anything to do with the X-Men. Yeah, I, I feel like there's always been a, a certain rivalry with with those two, even before AVX. Rivalry, like, that leads into some prejudice, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And they also, I think, just have different, like, I just think they have disagreements as well on how yeah. heroing is to be handled. And how to, like, treat the members of their team. Like, right. the X-Men is a full-on family, and most iterations of the Avengers are just, like, co-workers. Yeah, they're a corporation. They get paid 
to yeah to they have salaries yeah whereas like they have like we're here because we're we're family and fuck it <laughs> I, do, you think I just, do you think uh, xavier has an insurance plan that's my question do you think maybe i mean there's no way they keep rebuilding that house this many times without a great insurance plan I think Xavier has good insurance that, like, all of the X-Men are on the same plan. <laughs> you need it, bro. You, you need good insurance to, with how often this, get, this mansion gets attacked. Okay, other question, though. It's just this sort of popped into my head. The X-Men go to space a lot. Not in this, but, like, in the future. Do you think they have space insurance? Do you... Do you think Mar uh, the Marvel? Do you think the Marvel universe has like space space insurance or like Galactus insurance or like? I I would think that the Fantastic Four hooked up the X Men and the Avengers with their space insurance. I think Reed was the only one who like it was who had the foresight enough to invest in space in space insurance. Yeah. Um. But I feel like even if you're just like a ra a random citizen in the Marvel universe, like the insurance plans, if you live in like New York, must be through the roof. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine. Everyone's I... like, why do people still live in Gotham? It's because Gotham's cheap to live in. But yeah. New York already is expensive, regardless of all the shit that happens to it on a daily basis. Could you imagine the taxes of living in the Marvel, you know, the Marvel Universe in New York? How many taxes go to all these different... Oh my gosh, I cannot imagine. Like, now we have to, now we have to think about is like, because I know in the MCU, the Department of Damage Control is like a public government business. But, but in like the comics, I've always seen damage 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 control as like a private sector like they are operating as their own corporation they must be fucking rich right no exactly dude like like if you if you live in a major city in the marvel universe you must be paying so much to endure all that on a daily basis yeah damage controls making bank damage control making banks Oh god, New York real estate must suck even worse in the Marvel universe. Right, like do prices rise where there were past battles? Like do you think the Battle of New York, those couple of blocks are like spiked pricing? Hey, live in the area where the Battle of New York happened. I bet they gentrified that area. Well, it's downtown so it was already full gentrified, but like I think now they've turned it into an o like its own district like like so Socha, like south of Chitari attack or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'd imagine like right here is uh, the block that Iron Man brought down that giant uh, flying monster thing. Let's uh, yeah, we're going to raise the prices like 50 we're, grand. We're going to build the best Starbucks right here. <laughs> this Starbucks and you know what? Everything is going to cost five dollars extra. Because you get little commemorative cups that like show the Avengers assembling and the God, <laughs> I don't dude. New York though would be such a tourist attraction in the Marvel universe. Like people would come to New York on vacation. Like, Whoa, 
I where, hope we get to see a battle over here. Where is that aspect in the MCU? Where is the tourism in New York? Right, like, we've already shown off that in Hawkeye that, like, there is, like, statues and memorabilia dedicated to the Avengers across the city. So where's the tourism? Where is the themed restaurant? I am still on this. I am still on the themed restaurant train, everyone. Where is it? (laughs) Don't invest in a spider-themed restaurant. No, I think that... No, yeah, you're right. (laughs) <laughs> what, is, what is the safest Marvel character to invest in, like, a restaurant? Who would? I think Tony Stark, no, no, not MCU Tony Stark. I think comics Tony Stark would, like, invest in a themed restaurant, I think. Yeah, I think a great one would be um, uh, Pim Labs. They could oh. sell... Because, like, at, at Disney... In the Marvel yes. world over at Disney, yes. they have a Pim restaurant where there's small and giant food. So, like in the in the Marvel universe, I imagine that like Pim and 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 them would be like, "Yo, could you imagine how much money we would make from just selling giant burgers and giant foods? Like, uh, literally, so much money." Um. Um. Spoilers for a future episode. Um. We were paid. To do a um, we we were paid to do a sequel to that restaurant episode, and we will be covering. I haven't even told CNN and Laney about this, but we will be covering the Pim Test Kitchen from Avengers Campus at Disneyland, and yeah, and I will be bringing this up, but I need to look at. I need to show you some of these prices because this oh yeah. fucking. Makes me so mad about um on the entre. So the big sandwich, the big family sized big like panini sandwich, a hundred dollars, a hundred dollars for a sand for a sandwich with salami, rosemary ham, and provolone cheese. Well, you know. Um, you know, it is, well, (laughs) I don't really have a good explanation for that. Here's the thing. The rest of this stuff is, like, reasonably priced for, like, theme park food. Like, the the most expensive thing besides this big sandwich is, like, 16 bucks, and that's the big chicken sandwich. Well, they also have the enlarged Dingo Doce, Pingo Doce soda can, which is twenty two. Okay, but that's a, that's a like giant, like that's like a cola like beverage. That's like a collector's can, but like if you just want like an entree, um, right. I, you know, if I ever if we ever make enough money, I will go to Disneyland. I, I mean, will do I will do an episode on. Avengers Campus, and I'll eat the big hundred dollar sandwich. Oh my gosh, I'll invest with you. I'll I'll I'll, I'll help you out. Oh but like, God. I mean, like, the the entree is like the the panini sandwich for for fifteen bucks, and it comes with arugula salad and dipping sauce. Like that's it's a full too- it's a full meal. Like it's reasonably priced for theme park food, except the hundred dollar sandwich. 
you know, I mean, like it's something you got to try, man. It's like waterboarding. Like you got to try it at least once to know what it's like. I will save the rest of my thoughts on the Pim Test Kitchen for uh, Restaurant Crew Part 2. But um, but back to the Juggernaut, um, Johnny Storm <laughs> helps them out. And we get, I want to talk about the two last panels of issue 13. Um, first off, it's like the boys are in an infirmary and like Jean is the only one that like didn't fight much. She used her power. She was full Omega level Jean here. I, we completely forgot to talk about that because we went on so many tangents, but she was great here. She, like, really fucked up the Juggernaut, but now she's, like, playing nurse to the four guys in, which, like, these, which uh, I don't, which I don't like, and I don't like how 60s horny it all still is, but welcome to the 60s. Um, yeah, and I love how Hank McCoy is like, you know, my mother used to kiss me to expedite my recovery. And Jean's just like, well, good thing I'm not your fucking mom. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to talk about this real quick because I didn't realize like it was a hospital setting when I first saw it. I was like, I, when I saw it, I was like, oh, do they just all sleep in the same room together? <laughs> did it. But the dudes, like... <laughs> Like the 3 a.m. bunk bed conversations that could happen between Scott, Warren, mm. Hank, and Bobby. Hey, you guys oh ever my wonder gosh. where we? You guys ever wonder where we got our powers? I don't know. <laughs> but but you then so what, here. <laughs> you mean like here, physically or metaphorically? I don't know. Maybe both. Oh, oh my god. But um Anyways, so So me and Jean, I think we're going next level. Whoa, dude, that's crazy. We held hands last night. Oh my god. It's like god. a little middle schooler's sleepover. This uh bot bo it turns midnight and Bobby's just like, it's tomorrow now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, I'll see you guys tomorrow. I mean, tonight. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but so then they're like, hey, we did a great job. Do we get a reward, Professor? And he's, and then Charles is like, yes, you get a reward. It's a broom. You're going to clean up all this. <laughs> this motherfucker, your stepbrother, attacks the school, attacks your school. And you're making your, them clean up. Your students defend your your bald ass, and you're gonna make them fucking clean. I guess so. This is the most enraged Charles has made me, and I know he's gonna make me even more mad in future months. Oh, it'll only grow. It'll only grow. Um, and that concludes, uh, these issues. Final thoughts? I, it's fun. I know we went on so many tangents, but it's a very, like, fun, done-in-one story. Like, like, it's so self-contained. Like, it feels like just a fun Saturday morning cartoon. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, 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 
it's it feels like a Saturday morning cartoon in both uh, the good and bad of it. Yes, um, in the sense yeah. of where you know it can lack some substance, um, but it's also just a fun read. You know, like you just you read it and you're like, okay, that was fun, cool, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. You know, <laughs> um, I I enjoy it as the official introduction to the Juggernaut and really mm-hmm. getting his backstory because prior to reading this, my first introduction to the Juggernaut was uh, nothing can stop the Juggernaut through Spidey. Uh, essential spider. Oh, uh, yes. Um, and that was a really cool introduction for me. So to kind of see his uh, his origin was really interesting. But um, I mean, yeah, I, I think the the two issues are really good, and I think that they kind of do something that comics in the '60s didn't, or at least X Men didn't necessarily do. So I think it's a great status quo shifter. Um, without completely rewriting canon, um, so I think it it does a lot, and 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 yeah. I appreciate it a lot for that. So I am excited to see, um, kind of where we go, um, from there moving forward. Like, because I definitely want to read the rest of Uncanny X Men after this for sure. Um, oh, absolutely. Because you know, amidst its flaws, it's still really, really fun reading. Um, and I definitely want to continue my, my, my journey into the world of the X-Men. Yeah. I'm quite inexperienced. And now moving to our final segment, um, welcome back to cast the comic. Um, still tentative names. Um, we're going to figure it out one of these days, gang. Um, but (laughs) I, we talked about the X-Men in our first episode, like who, I have, I have, and I would have in mind for an MCU version of this, but I just want to focus on the Juggernaut today, and oh. I only have, I only have one choice. I only have one option, because I was thinking about like, um, thinking about like, you need a big guy, you need a bodybuilder, but it's he's gonna be like augmented by CGI regardless, so he doesn't look like horrible, horrible X-Men The Last Stand juggernaut. Um, right. Who looked too thin and too scrawny. But you need a big guy to, like, pre- do with the presence. So, mm-hmm. I've never seen Game of Thrones. But, um... But I... Oh, it's Icelandic. I don't know how to pronounce this. Um, Hold on. I There's... Wikipedia has a listen to the pronunciation. Hold on. How for Julius Bjerson, um, he was the mountain in Game of Thrones for multiple seasons. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah, I I initially was going to go with um, what's his name? Uh, he's from Troy. He's from Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, Nathan Jones. Ooh, yes. Okay. He's just a bulky dude. <laughs> I yeah, god, I should watch Fury Road again. Um I will throw out another one, um maybe for like a pre finds the gem cane, uh Paul Walter Hauser is also a good one. Like yeah. he has the stature already. Um yeah, like you I think we're both sort of in in agreement here. Like you need a big guy. You need Yes. 
you need someone to um to carry the presence and like the feel the feel you need to feel like this really is an unstoppable force right it needs to, he needs to feel not just physically but just performance wise like a freight train yeah yeah you need someone who can hit like the bombastic verbose dialogue of the juggernaut and also like the power of his punches right yeah it i mean i mean juggernaut is is kind of uh a tough cast just because it is so hard to i feel like find someone with that necessary like oomph you know you can find people that are big but in terms of performance like you gotta like you know really and i think that these actors we chose i think are like some of the best picks i've seen personally for a character of such um grand scale yeah and i think there's a reason like deadpool 2 did it where the juggernaut was entirely cgi yeah i mean ryan reynolds played (laughs) the juggernaut um, for the voice i think i'm um he's credited as as himself eddie um he is a working actor he is looking for work he needs this he needs this imdb credit (laughs) the juggernaut as himself oh my gosh is he um, actually? Yeah. It's my favorite detail of Deadpool 2. No way. Wait. I need... Oh my god, that's hilarious. That's actually uh, incredible. Yes. So, um, thank you everyone for joining us for our third installment of X Month this year. Um, we will see you again next week. Uh, thank you, Eddie, for joining us. This was it a great time. Always a pleasure. Always so many tangents. So many tangents, but it always works. <laughs> yeah, love it. Love love coming on. I love talking about comic books, so I mean you really can't can't beat that. Yeah, you're gonna be back again one more time this year, so Yeah, I'm excited. Alright. Have a great day, everyone. And remember, the juggernaut in Deadpool 2 was real. He was fucking real, and he's coming for you. Run. Please run. (laughs) Go run. Get out of here. Run. Go now. Recommended Reading with Jackson Heyman's theme music was written by Charlotte Rosenthal. Recommended Reading with Jackson Heyman is produced by Mythonomica Productions. Thank you for listening.